Father, we give you thanks for this strong affirmation of the truths of your word from Dr. Michael Haken earlier this morning. And now we thank you for the opportunity to look again at your word on the doctrine of justification by faith alone and how it is taught so firmly and clearly and repeatedly in your word and what a great joy it is to talk about it. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand it rightly and that you'd help us to understand attractive alternatives in the culture and even in the church that would lead us astray from this doctrine and understand why they should not be adopted and are incorrect. And then fill our hearts with a deeper trust in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Justification by faith according to scripture and how it differs from alternative views today. Just a background, big picture, 30,000 foot overview with the order of salvation or the what's called ordo salutis in Latin phraseology that's been used in theology texts. What happens to us in the whole process of salvation in a broad sense? At least 10 things. God chooses us in election before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> the gospel call comes to us in the words of scripture and we hear believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In connection with the powerful word coming to us, the Holy Spirit works in us to awaken new spiritual life in what we call regeneration. And then once that happens, we have the gospel call coming to us. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And the next thing that happens is we respond in repentance and faith, or what we could call conversion, turning from sin to turning to Christ in saving faith. And after we have faith in Christ as a result of saving faith, God justifies us, declares us to be righteous in his sight. That's what we're going to focus on today. Instantly also, God makes us, his sons and daughters, makes us members of his family in what we call adoption. Beginning at that point also, but then continuing through the Christian life uh, until the point of death and then even in glorification, there's a process of making us more Christ-like, more uh, morally conform to the moral uh, will of God in uh, sanctification. And perseverance is remaining a Christian through our lives and then uh, the point of our death where our souls go to, into the presence of God and glorification, where our bodies are rejoined to our souls and our bodies are made perfect as well in the presence of Christ. So that's the overview, and we're going to focus on just one item there, justification. Definition, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. So we're going to break that down into two steps. God thinking of us as for our sins is forgiven and Christ's righteousness belonging to us and then declaring us to be righteous in his sight. Justification includes a legal declaration by God. And uh, the Dikai'a'o word group has a range of meanings, but the meaning that is most appropriate in these justification texts is the meaning of declaring someone to be just or righteous, declaring someone to conform to an external moral standard of good and, of good and evil or an external moral standard of right and wrong. So here's an example of that word dikaya'o, meaning to declare just. When the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, or in other words, they justified God, they 
proclaimed that God was just, and the Greek word dikaiao is here in the Greek text, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, that isn't God's act of justification. It's just an example of the word in Greek at that time being understood to mean to declare to be righteous or just. Romans 4, 5, And to one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Again, that's a declaration that the ungodly are considered righteous or godly. And that's another example of the word used in that way. Josh, can I walk around, or do I? is this being videotaped or just audio? If I walk, it's okay. Oh, I see. Uh, <laughs> following the camera, okay. Um, and I'm, just so we don't get too long on the discussion here, I'm not going to read every verse that I have on this presentation. Uh, but here's another, here's another instance of the word justify from an Old Testament passage. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. You can see here the sense of justification means something opposite to condemning, opposite to declaring someone guilty. To condemn the righteous is an abomination. To declare someone, to condemn the righteous is an abomination. That is to declare someone to be guilty when the person is righteous, that's an abomination to the Lord. If a judge would do that, for instance, and to, if a judge would justify the wicked, that's declare the wicked to be righteous, uh, that would be an abomination to God. Now, this is something God does in our salvation, but he doesn't want human rulers to do it. But I'm just saying there's another example of the word meaning to declare someone to be righteous or morally right or legally in the right. Sometimes justification is said to be forensic. It has to do with legal proceedings or proceedings in a court of law. So now coming down into more detail about how this happens, God declares us to be just in his sight. He declares that we have no penalty to pay for sin. After this long discussion of justification by faith alone in the earlier chapters of Romans, Paul says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, looking back at his previous argument in Romans 3.4.5.6.7, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we have no penalty to pay for sin. And in that earlier discussion, Paul talks about David in the Old Testament saying, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. So that's one part of justification. God says we don't have penalty to pay for sin. There's no condemnation for us. (sighs) That should be a great cause for thanksgiving. And um, just uh, this morning, earlier, as I was thinking about coming here, I was thinking, Lord, thank you that I'm justified. There's no penalty to pay for my sin. We become so used to it in the Christian life, we sometimes take it for granted, but it's an amazing, an amazing, wonderful truth. All the past sins in your life, once you've trusted in Christ, there's no penalty to pay for those ever for all eternity. But that's not all. Forgiveness of sins is only one part of justification. Forgiveness makes us morally neutral. No negative record of wrongs done against God. But it doesn't give us favor with God, no moral approval of righteousness or righteous conduct. So there's something else. We need God somehow to give us the merits of perfect righteousness. 
And this also happens in justification where God declares that we are righteous in his sight and he is able to do this because he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. To impute means that God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Um, An Old Testament imagery that teaches that, Isaiah 61, 10, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So if you could think of yourself as standing before God, all your sins are forgiven, but you haven't done anything good to merit God's favor, and he puts the robe of Christ's righteousness over you, and he looks at you and sees that, the righteousness of Christ, his perfect life that he lived in a way to please God, that is counted as yours. And he thinks of you as having that in your account. And Paul talks about it explicitly in Romans three twenty-one to 22. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It comes to us through faith, but it's the righteousness of God that comes to us. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Logizomai here uh, is the word to think of as belonging to him. When my uh, sons were younger, Elliot, our oldest son, had a red bike with training wheels. And then he got so he could ride it without the training wheels, and he got a blue bike that was a little bit bigger. And his younger brother, Oliver had been looking at that red bike with training wheels for some time. So we go out to the garage. Elliot, this is your new bike. Oliver, would you like that red bike of Elliot's? Oh, yes. (laughs) Okay, so the dad says, Oliver, that red bike is now yours. I thought of it as belonging to him, and I declared it to be his. And the red bike with training wheels now belonged to the second son. And a few minutes later, Elliot thought he might want to go try that old red bike that used to belong to him. I said, Elliot, no, that's not yours. That's Oliver's now. The dad declared it to be so, and it was. But in declaring it to be so, there was also a mental activity of mine in which I thought of it as belonging to Oliver now, not to the older brother. So God thinks of, he reckons, logizomai, he reckons our faith as righteousness. David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God, logizomai again, counts or reckons thinks of, imputes righteousness apart from works. God gives us Christ's righteousness apart from our works. Another verse talking about this, Romans 5.19, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Kathistemi, sorry. Um, Righteous, dikaios, righteous. So we're constituted righteous by God's act of thinking it, to be true of us, and declaring it to be true of us. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is our righteousness. For for our sake, God made him Christ to be sin, who knew no sin. So our sin was thought of as belonging to Christ, imputed to him, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God the righteousness of God that Christ earned was imputed to us. 
the righteousness from, and Paul wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. It wasn't his own good deeds or works that had done this, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's not his own righteousness. It's the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this idea of imputation, of thinking of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, this idea of imputation is at the heart of the gospel. It is essential to the heart of the gospel. The alternative, if God does not think of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, the alternative is that justification would change us, change us internally, and God would look at you and would not be able to declare you righteous until he saw that in your heart there was 100% purity until he saw that in your mind and, your, and in, in all your actions and thoughts and words there was 100% purity, then he could declare you righteous on the basis of your own righteousness. But we could never be declared perfectly righteous in this life because of remaining sin, right? And there would be no provision for forgiveness of past sins committed before we were changed internally. Okay, so then if you have perfect righteousness in your heart and your mind and your words and, and all of you are perfectly holy, what happens to all those past sins? How, is, how are those going to be paid for? There's still no, unless those are imputed to Christ and he takes them on himself, you still have accountability for them. So if, if justification just changed us internally, which is a Roman Catholic view, depended on changing us internally, then we could never have confidence that we are right before God because we're never pure in this life. Of course, the Catholics supply purgatory to take care of that, but that's an addition to Scripture. And then um, we could never have an assurance that our, our past sins have all been taken care of either. So this is essential to the whole gospel message. God justifies us through our faith in Christ. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law will no one be justified. So it's, um, we've believed in order to be justified. There's a clear statement that justification is the instrument by which we take hold of justification and on account of which God declares us, uh, decides to declare us as righteous in his sight. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Why does God decide that justification comes to us as a result of our faith? Why didn't he say you are justified by joy? You'd go around trying to be... <laughs> I wonder if I'm joyful enough. What if God justified us on the on the count of our peace, while well, we just try to become Buddhists and meditate for <laughs> I mean, you try to just relax and be at peace. But all of those require our effort, don't they? If he justified us on account of our kindness, we'd go around and try to be kind to everybody. If he justified us on account of our witnessing to others, we'd become Jehovah's Witnesses and go knock on doors and irritate people. <laughs> but... Faith is the one attitude of heart that is the exact opposite of depending on your own effort. You can try to be happy, you can try to be peaceful, you can try to be joyful, you can try to be kind to others. That's effort. Faith is saying, Lord, I give up. 
I cannot do this myself. Nothing I try works. I'm never perfect in your sight. Lord, I trust you to forgive me and grant me Christ's righteousness. Why do I think that that's why God shows faith as the attitude by which we would appropriate justification? Because Paul says this in Romans 4.16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace as opposed to our effort and be guaranteed to all his descendants. So faith is giving up trust in ourselves and trusting in Christ and, begin, and coming to trust in Christ. Point D, justification come to, comes to us entirely by God's grace, not on account of any merit in ourselves. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this, I think the whole process, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So again and again, the New Testament affirms that justification is by God's grace. There's no merit in it. And the first reaction of most human beings, maybe all human beings throughout the history of the world is, I don't like this. You mean I can't merit God's favor. No, you can't. But what about all the good that I have done? doesn't count. It's not good in God's sight. And the world resists that. And non-Christians resist that. That's the initial reaction until people have conviction by the Holy Spirit of their need, their absolute need for Christ rather than depending on their own merit. The historic Protestant view, so that's the summary of the overview of the Protestant viewpoint of justification. This historic Protestant view of justification is different from several alternative views today. And I'm going to mention seven alternatives. And I'm going to say you and I are going to be tempted to adopt these alternative views, at least several of them. The first one is we affirm that genuine faith must include a repentance from sin, which is not merely a change of mind, but includes remorse for sin and an internal resolve to turn from sin. I've heard people say, repent. Well, the New Testament word, metanoeo, the verb, and metanoia, the noun, mean change of mind. Meta, change, noeo, noia, mind. And etymologically, that is the origin of the word that's using its two parts to define it. But it's dangerous to define a word based on the two parts that make it up, like butterfly. Stick of butter flying through the air. No. Um, and we need to define a word based on its actual usage in the New Testament and early Christian literature. And if you look at the New Testament, the Bauer Dankerant Gingrich lexicon on, under uh, the words for repent, metanoeo and metanoia, you'll see that it's a, a cha- it involves a complete turning and change of life and includes a remorse for sin and a, and a decision to forsake it and results in a change of life. So there are many verses in the New Testament that talk about the need for repentance. Now, who am I disagreeing with here? I'm disagreeing with my friends who hold a free grace view of salvation, who say that repentance is only a change of mind. Uh, P.S., I believe that grace is free, but I'm talking about a special subcategory of evangelical theology called 
free grace theology, capital F, capital G, and I've written about that, but I'm not going to go into it in detail, just to say this is a temptation for all of us to water down the need for repentance in presenting the gospel. Because unbelievers don't like to hear they need to turn from their sin. But I believe that true preaching of the gospel, while it says you can never do anything to make yourself acceptable to God, also must say, there's a, if you're going to turn to Christ and trust him in salvation, you need to have a, a conscious decision of your will to turn from sin as you turn to Christ. And the turning from sin is repentance, and the turning to Christ is faith. Yes, the New Testament talks about whoever believes in, let's see, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, or John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Sometimes the New Testament talks about that, uh, the decision of conversion as just belief. But sometimes, frequently, much more often than I hear today, it talks about it just in terms of repentance. It's very interesting. Jesus, at the end of his life, before he ascended into heaven, said that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Where's faith? Where's faith in that verse? This is what Jesus is saying should be proclaimed to all nations. The only way you can explain that verse consistent with the rest of the New Testament is that he understands repentance to mean a complex of turning from sin and turning to him in faith. That if, you mention, if you mention genuine New Testament repentance, you are also including faith. Just as if you mention genuine faith, you're also including repentance. It's two parts of the same act. Look again, Acts 17, 30 to 31. This is Paul the Apostle. First speech he gets to make to the, philosoph- the pagan Greek philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens. If you get to speak to pagan, secular philosophers, are you going to talk in the very first talk about repentance from sin? You've got to be, have a lot of courage if you're going to do that. But this is what Paul says. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given testimony by raising him from the dead. So, I didn't put the rest of the passage up there, but repent. And then he says, because final judgment is coming. That has to do with repenting, having a sense of remorse for your sins and a need to flee to Christ for forgiveness of sins. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Okay, or Paul summarizes his gospel as testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There both are mentioned, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's Paul's summary of his gospel message. It wasn't just um, pray to receive Christ. It was repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Hebrews 6.1 puts them both together. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. There it's more explicitly brought out what you're repenting from, the things you've done wrong, the works that aren't going to earn you salvation. Repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. Now, I, um, I've used the four spiritual laws a number of times. 
My wife became a Christian in college through the four spiritual laws. Uh, I'm thankful for the ministry of Campus Crusade and for many people that have become Christians through the four spiritual laws. There is not much emphasis on repentance in the four spiritual laws. There is a little bit, and you can add to it, which I do, because the prayer that you're going to pray says, forgive my sins and make me the kind of person you want me to be. So forgive my sins involves a repentance, sorry, involves a sense of repentance and make me the kind of person you want me to be does involve implicitly an internal resolve to turn from sin. So it's there, but it's not made much of. And I think we have a tendency to shy away from the need to call people to repent of sins. Are you with me? I loved what Dr. Haken said in the previous hour about John Calvin. The the reason he thinks he was converted at, what, 1534 or something like that, was that was when he started to make things right that he had done previously. There was evidence of change of life and remorse for what had gone on before. Um, That's essential to the gospel. Justification is by faith alone, but that faith includes a turning from sin to turn to God or to turn to Christ in forgiveness, for forgiveness. Number two, genuine faith must include not merely intellectual agreement with facts about Christ, but also individual reliance on Christ as a living person. Um, some time ago, I was talking to a, a non-Christian friend about... Um, about the gospel claims and claims of Christ. And there was an event at our church that I thought he might be interested in, so he came with me, and we heard a gospel. We heard uh, the speaker was a really good speaker, and we had heard a gospel presentation. As we're driving home, my friend said, you mean all I have to do is believe in Christ and I'll be saved? And I said, yes. I think that he didn't have any sense that he had to repent of sin. And there were patterns of life conduct, because I knew him, there were patterns of life conduct that I knew were contrary to God's moral law, and they were not secret patterns of conduct. But I didn't bring it up, and I regret that, because I think I gave a, a cheapened gospel by not talking enough about the need for repentance. And then I think also I didn't explain enough the need for reliance on Christ as a living person. It's not just believing facts. Let's see, you read in the Bible that Jesus died for, that you're a sinner. Do you agree? Yes. Did Jesus die for your sins? Well, it says in the Bible, I believe it. So uh, yes, I agree that Jesus died for my sins. Okay, you're saved. Is It's just that's like believing that the table is three feet high and has round and has um, and seats eight people, which Dr. Haken gave as an example. That's intellectual agreement with facts in history, facts about Christ. That's like believing that John Calvin lived in such and such a day. There's no personal commitment. But the picture of the Bible, when it talks about faith, the picture is individual reliance on Christ as a living person. So let me, let me, let me just mention that to you. Saving faith... It's pictured not just as intellectual agreement with facts, but it's pictured as coming coming to Christ. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Uh, John six thirty seven, and other verses about coming to him. Matthew eleven twenty eight to twenty nine. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest to your souls. I remember when I was a student at Westminster Seminary, sitting in the library, reading a systematic theology assignment from Charles Hodge, Systematic Theology, and Hodge talked about, I think it was from Hodge, Systematic Theology, talked about the necessity to trust in Christ as a living person who is present. And I thought, and he, he talked about this verse, and I thought, this is right. When I'm talking about the gospel to someone, I have to say, Jesus is present here right now. I want you to think of him as a living person who is present with you. And I, I'm, I'm asking you, can you place your trust in him? He says, come to me. To come to him involves a personal action of coming to a person and placing trust in that person. Saving faith is pictured as receiving Christ. To all who received him who believed in his name, John 1, 11 and 12, he gave power to become the children of God. In the first century, to receive someone was to welcome the person into your home, to welcome the person into fellowship and interaction and interpersonal relationship. That's a personal activity. That's not just thinking of facts about someone who lived 2,000 years ago. Okay, I believe those facts, I'm saved. No, it's coming to him It's receiving him, welcoming him into your life. Saving faith is pictured as believing something in your heart. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or Acts 16, 14, God opened Lydia's heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. And saving faith is pictured as believing in a person. John 3, 16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This Construction, the verb pistuo, to believe, plus the, ver- the uh, preposition ace. Ace means into. And it's very unusual in Greek literature outside the time of the New Testament to talk about believing into someone. But to believe in Christ, which is translated that way in many verses in the New Testament, to believe in Christ means in a sense, going out of yourself and resting or trusting or relying on him as a person to believe, to place yourself into him for care and forgiveness and salvation. So a number of passages in the New Testament talk about this as a personal interaction. Now, children growing up in Sunday school, did you pray the prayer? Yes, I prayed the prayer. I don't know if I used the right words. It isn't a question of the right words. It's a question of, have you come to Christ as a living person? Have you come to him? Have you thought of him as being present? Have you recognized that he is present? Have you talked to him and said, Lord Jesus, I trust you. I put my reliance in you. I put my faith in you. I put my confidence in you. I rely upon you. That's resting in him. I receive you into my life. I believe in my heart that you are my savior. I believe into you. That's a personal interaction. And I think also we have a tendency to make it too simple and too easy, get people to pray a prayer. If they pray the prayer, they're saved. I think praying a prayer is a good way to express that coming to Christ if it is representing something that is in the person's heart. Number three, justification is a declaration of righteousness in light of God's moral law and not a declaration of inclusion in a community of God's people. N.T. Wright and others following a new perspective on Paul have claimed that justification does not have to do with a legal declaration that we are righteous before God. Oh, forget that law court imagery. That's not what it's about. 
but rather it's a declaration that we are members of God's covenant community, God's people. It's a declaration that we're included, we belong, we're in the community of God's people. My reply to that is, that isn't what the Bible teaches. The justification word group, dikaios, dikaiao, simply does not take that meaning to declare someone part of a community. Go ahead and look in the Bauer, Denker, and Gingrich lexicon or the Little and Scott lexicon for yourself. It's nowhere in the meaning, nowhere in the sense of dikaiao. They're trying to make a word mean, and N.T. Wright should know better than this. Trying to make a word mean something that it doesn't ever mean at the time of the New Testament. The meaning that is appropriate for this word group is to render a favorable verdict, to vindicate dikaiustai, to be (laughs) acquitted, to be pronounced and treated as righteous, and thereby become dikaios, righteous, receive the divine gift of righteousness through faith in Christ and apart from law as a basis for evaluation. That's the meaning that we need to have, not to make up a meaning that is not attested at the time of the New Testament. Justification is by the imputation of an alien righteousness, not by God's evaluation of our own future righteousness. So these these two go together. The New Perspective on Paul says justification, oh no, it's, it's a declaration that we're members of God's covenant community. How can God declare that you are members of his community? Because, not because he imputes Christ's righteousness to you, but a totally different idea that God justifies you based on the future moral perfection that you will have or that we ourselves will have. He looks into the future, into the time after Christ returns. He says, oh, well, uh, Tommy, Tommy Smith here is... Is, is going to be perfectly righteous at some time in the future, so I'll think of that as belonging to him now. But what is that? That's his own righteousness. That's not the righteousness of Christ. So Christ's righteousness in the new perspective on Paul is that his righteousness is not imputed to us, but God justifies us based on the future moral perfection that we ourselves will have. And thus, in the end, God will declare us righteous on the basis of the whole life lived not even just our status of 100% holiness at that time, but on the basis of the whole life lived. My goodness, that response, that position has no satisfactory answer to some clear passages on New New Testament passages on imputation. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's imputing our sin to Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's in Christ. Christ. God imputes Christ's righteousness to us. Not that we have our own righteousness, but it's the righteousness of God. Paul wants to be found in Christ, Philippians 3, 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's not a righteousness of his own from the law. This new perspective on Paul claim is very troubling because it sounds dangerously like salvation by our own works. God will evaluate your whole life lived in the future and impute that merit to you now. That's not justification by faith alone in the Reformation sense at all. It's a mistake. Justification does not include sanctification. Now I'm differing with our Roman Catholic friends. The traditional Roman Catholic view of justification is justification is something that changes us internally and makes us more holy within. The Catechism of the Catholic Church Paragraph 1989, justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inner man. And this this, uh, is Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, 
first published in 1994 and then updated in 1996 or 97. This is current Catholic teaching, official teaching of the Catholic Church. Justification is also the sanctification and renewal of the inner man. But that is a quotation, that's in quotation marks in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And the footnote points to the Council of Trent in 1547, which Dr. Haken re- referred to, was the time they declared anathema, if anybody said that justification is by faith alone. But they're quoting the Council of Trent even today as official Catholic teaching. On this view, righteousness is infused, not imputed. Andy, I see somebody I know here. <laughs> Andy's been a student in my class, and uh, sometimes he sat in the front row and he ended up being an example other times. But <laughs> you want to be justified on a Roman Catholic view, you have to wait until God pumps or infuses righteousness into you. And when you get enough of it, then he'll declare you righteous. How do you get enough? You attend Mass and use the other sacraments in the Catholic Church. And every time you make use of those sacraments, you get a little more of God's grace pumped into you or infused into you. But you're never going to make it in this life. So that's the Roman Catholic view, and we respectfully differ. On this view, people cannot be sure if they are in a state of grace. So there's no assurance of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, no Romans 8.1 assurance. People can experience varying degrees of justification Our our eternal life with God is based both on God's grace and our merits earned by attending the Mass and and using the other means of of grace, such as um, baptism when you're an infant and penance, uh, confession and penance, confirmation, other means of grace. But that's a far different view from keeping justification distinct from sanctification Justification as a legal declaration by God that we are not guilty, but we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Justification does not depend on any of our good works, but on faith alone. The Roman Catholic view, our Roman Catholic friends would differ on this. They would say justification is by faith plus the sacraments. The church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. That's why people have to keep going back to the mass every week, because they get another infusion of grace in a Roman Catholic sense. So, and again, they said justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inner man. So it's continuing to make yourself gradually more sanctified internally. That viewpoint keeps people coming back to the Catholic Church and attaches them to the Catholic Church and reinforces their need to come back to the Catholic Church to continue to have infusions of grace. But I think it's... Luther thought it was wrong, and today we believe it is wrong. The Lutheran World Federation in... A number of years ago, just a moment, let me look at this. The Lutheran World Federation, 1999, a joint declaration of the Doctrine of Justification declared that they've agreed with the Roman Catholic Church on justification. But it did not say justification by faith alone. I had a phone call a couple years ago from a pastor. Wayne, have you seen the Roman Catholic Church is going to agree with us on justification? I said, read me the statement. He said, we agree that justification is a result of faith. And I said, is that the end of it or does it say alone? No, it doesn't have the word alone. Then they don't agree with us. He was misled by the affirmation of justification by faith into thinking that Roman Catholics had adopted a Lutheran or Reformation view. If they didn't have the word alone, they didn't agree. 
They'll say faith, yes, but faith plus the mass, faith plus baptism, faith plus the sacraments. That is faith plus works. That's faith plus our effort. And we have to insist, no, that is not the New Testament doctrine. Justification is by faith alone. This is the heart of the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of use of the sacraments, so that no one may boast. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But this also has to be said. Justification will always result in good works. This is the last of seven mistaken views that we need to be aware of. Justification will always result in good works. There's a temptation to say, well, my friend, my relative, trusted in Christ, uh, and I never saw any change, but he did pray a prayer to receive Christ a long time ago. But there was never any change in his or her life. And my response is, the Bible doesn't give any basis for assurance if there's no evidence of changed life. Changed life doesn't earn you justification, but it's the result of regeneration and justification. So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, says James, is dead. Paul says, examine yourselves. These are churchgoers he's talking to. And I think we need to say to people in our churches, you think you're saved, well, 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless you fail to meet the test. Paul is saying that there's a chance that there are unconverted people who are regular churchgoers in the church at Corinth. Could it be true in our churches today? Oh, yes, certainly. And we have a responsibility to make the gospel so clear that they are not deceived into thinking they're saved when they're not. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Not that you're perfect. But the Christians that I know, and I think the Christians that you know, that you have gotten to know in your life and you've gotten to know in the fellowship of your church, overall there's a pattern of living in conformity with the commandments and teachings of Scripture. Not that there are no mistakes, not that our hearts are perfect, but you keep his commandments in general. That's When, when someone would characterize your life, it wouldn't be um, a despicable uh, Uh, sinner always violating God's moral standards. It would be someone who is basically living in conformity with uh, the pattern of following Christ. By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. When I put this together last night, there was a point eight that somehow I deleted by accident. The world will never stop opposing justification by faith alone because justification by faith alone is opposed by our pride. We don't like to have nothing we can do and depend on Christ alone. And then for us as believers, the gospel of justification by faith alone, not by good works, can be opposed by our desire not to offend people when they say, well, haven't I lived a pretty good life and we don't want to offend? I think the new perspective on Paul is a danger to say it isn't on the imputation of alien righteousness, but it's just being counted as a member of God's community because that gives the appeal of not offending serious, sincere Jewish people who have 
sought to follow sought to follow God in their own way, and if they don't think they need the imputation of Christ's righteousness to them, uh, then it won't give offense. If they don't need to trust in Christ, it won't give offense. And I think there's a danger that the world will continue to oppose justification by faith alone in the, with our Roman Catholic friends. The attraction of the faith plus is it does continue to reinforce a need to keep going to the Catholic Church and keep coming back to the priest for confession of sins and the in continual bit-by-bit infusion of grace. So the world will resist the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Practical implications. This is a wonderful doctrine. It enables us to offer genuine hope to unbelievers who know they could never make themselves right before God. So yes, it counters human pride, but once people realize they're hopeless and they can't make themselves right, then this is wonderful news because it offers genuine hope. Number two, this doctrine gives us confidence that God will never make us pay the penalty for sins that have been forgiven on Christ's merits. Yes, God may discipline us as his children, may discipline for our good. There may be ordinary consequences for sin in our life, but God will never take vengeance on us for sins or punish us out of wrath for the purpose of doing us harm. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I think there is a danger in us to begin to reflect on the flag that we stole when we were a teenager or... um, Sorry, Michael, but thanks for a good example. Uh, and I agree with what, what you said, uh, that those past sins are forgiven. And uh, we may have sorrow over harm that we've caused to others, but never should we think that God is going to punish us or make us suffer out of payment for those or uh, to try to do us harm as a result of those. Justification is the great central truth of the gospel. It should bring us great joy and peace before God. I'm going to take one more minute here because I have questions for application. This is to ask yourself and it's for me to ask myself. Are you confident that God has declared you not guilty forever in his sight? Did you do anything to deserve justification? Is there a little bit of pride creeping in? It's the gift of God, not because of works, so that no one may boast. Number two, take a minute and think of yourself standing before God on the day of judgment. Would you think it is enough simply to have all your sins forgiven? Or would you feel a need to have the righteousness of Christ reckoned to your account? That's an interesting question. Could you stand before God having nothing good done? Because your own efforts didn't count for anything. Or do you see the need also to have a life of Christ's perfect obedience and righteousness counted to you so you have joy at being covered with the robe of his righteousness? Number three, describe how you would feel about your relationship to God if you had the Roman Catholic view of justification. That is, that you're not going to be justified until you're perfect, and you're not going to be perfect in this life at all. And even after this life, you have to go to purgatory and have the sins that remain be purged while people are praying for you to get out of purgatory. That was what concerned Martin Luther. That is still Roman Catholic teaching today. And we we are thankful for our Roman Catholic friends 
And I have to say there are Roman Catholic friends who have genuinely trusted in Christ and who are genuinely saved in spite of this teaching, not because of it. There's been enough content of the gospel. So I don't want to say that all Catholics are not saved, but I'm going to say that their view of justification is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. And if you think you have to depend on your internal infused righteousness to be good enough before God and justified by God, you'll never have assurance of salvation in this life. It would make you very uneasy. Number four, have you ever wondered if God is still continuing to punish you for past sins? Don't. <laughs>